Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And today on the Progressive Interview Couch, I have Jason McCarthy. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Well, it's great to have you here today, and I thought it'd be great to have Jason on the podcast, because I think Jason's story is just so inspiring. But also, if I can tease it out of him, we'll get some great tips out of Jason on how to pursue rent-to-rent strategy, how to use JV partners, really how to get started in property when it looks like you haven't got an awful lot going for you, which I hope you don't mind me saying. No, no, that's just where it was. come through as we go through this podcast. Hmm. So, Jason, great to have you here today. Now, you haven't always been in property, have you? I haven't, no. What what Hmm. was the very first thing you did? I actually grew up on a pig farm. On a pig farm? Yeah. So, okay. So I know I was there, sort of born into that, into a farming family uh, down in Surrey. As they, I think they say it's f- farming's a fantastic lifestyle, but a bit like crime, it never pays in the long term. <laughs> so um, yeah, we did that until I was um, used to help out at weekends and then before school. And then um, right up until I was 20, 25, worked on that for 10 years from when I left school. Right. Well, if they're in Surrey, they must have been very posh pigs. Were they? Oh, they were. Special, yes, yes. special breed pigs. Well, well spoken, yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what did you do then, age 25? So I decided it was time to go walk about. That's all I'd done on the, on the farm. So I uh, joined uh, an expedition group called Operation Raleigh, went out to Borneo for a six-week um, expedition, and I kind of planned to stay away a couple of months and ended up staying away two years. Wow. Um, spent a lot of time in Australia, New Zealand, all around Asia, so... Really enjoyed that, but yeah, after two years, I'd kind of run out of money. Had no assets earning me any money, so it was time to come home and look to repay my debts and um, kind of start again. I didn't really know where to go from there, but came. I knew I didn't want to go back and work on a farm for someone else. But when I came home, my father had stopped. He kind of retired. He'd had enough of the pigs while I'd been away. Yeah. And came back and thought, well, where, where now? Um, and the only thing I was qualified to do at the time was drive a truck. Oh, okay. So I got a, got a job driving a truck for someone else. But on the farm, I thought, yeah, what are we going to do to make money now? Um, and I'd heard a story that the local pub landlord had a, a house next to the pub that I think he bought at the same time. And he used to rent out rooms to people that worked in the film studios. Right. Really, Where were you based? This is down in Shepparton. Shepparton. So Shepparton Studios, yeah, very famous. That's it. Part yeah. of the, the Pinewood group. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I heard the story how he'd rent rooms out and then would just leave food in the fridge for people to help themselves. And, and I thought, that's an idea because we had a couple of empty rooms in the farmhouse. You know, my sisters had left and my brother had left. So we just put an advert up and went round and knocked on the door and said, does anybody need any rooms? And, and then people came and stayed and started paying us money. And we thought, well, this is a good idea. Right. So um, you're basically doing sort of HMO stroke serviced accommodation. Well, it was serviced accommodation was. Yeah, yeah. F- nearly, nearly 20 years ago before we realised really what it was. Yeah. And, um, and on the farm, there was an old building that had fallen down in the storms in 87. And we thought, well, maybe I can rebuild this, but actually do it so that we could put a room in there and maybe build a bathroom and, so over a summer with a friend of mine, we rebuilt built that. And that had four single beds in one big room. And in the film studios, there's a lot of people work in production. And they might be carpenters, plasterers, all that, the artists, um, painters and sculptors. And they would come in for maybe a week. You know, it could be six months, a um, week, you know, week, a month, six months. And that was really successful. And so, well, okay, then we bought a park home and did another unit. And I actually, the, and just kept going and so then rather than farming pigs we were now farming people 
sometimes they were just as much mess to clear up. <laughs> but um, they def- the difference was they paid money. Yeah. And so was that your main business then at the time? And that, well, within the family, yeah. So I, was still, I still had my day job. But that was kind of the family business then. We then moved over because there'd been no income from the once we'd stopped the animals. Yeah. And so, yeah, back, way back then, it was actually serviced accommodation. It was kind of bed and breakfast but with no breakfast. Right. And didn't, really, didn't know what else to call it. And then all these years later, I hear everyone now, it's a new buzzword. But now we've been doing it nearly 20 years. Yeah. yeah. And obviously very successful at that time. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it was. Um, particularly the money, because obviously on the farm, there was never a lot of spare money. So it was quite a, an interesting shift to see this cash and but because we'd had so many years of learning to live on very little mm. able to save money and then that gave me the deposit for buying a house right so for yourself was, um well it, it was for myself but it was actually it was on the there's a big housing estate next to the studios so we bought that house and then um i just used to rent out rooms in the house for the same thing and that was back in 2002 and then over time saved up enough from a deposit and i think i probably used a credit card as well at the time when it was a lot easier to get finance and then got my first um, buy to let. It was the second property. Mm-hmm. And about a year, eighteen months later, had my third property. And all the, it was predominantly studios workers, but there was also we're near to the airport down at Heathrow. Mm-hmm. And back then, I just had done it without really any support. And I kind of thought, well, this is really easy. And mm-hmm. without understanding and appreciating just how lucky I was with the timing and the market. And then I got um, got involved in the nightclub industry. Well, that's quite a big jump, isn't it? That's a big jump to go from even service accommodation units to jump up to nightclubs. Mm. So, what was that all about? Well, that was a, it, it. Was a fairly slow. It was a slowish journey, but yeah, I was I was on the side doing some network marketing. I'd been introduced to that, and through that, I'd met a guy who was in London, and he was running nightclub parties in other people's venues. At the time, I enjoyed music, and I felt I'd got some experience in business, and we talked about doing something on it uh, together. And it went from a couple of club parties, and then in the end we took a small studio, and um, he was a, a music producer. Really successful by his own words. I was later to learn maybe not as successful as perhaps he'd told me. But mm-hmm. um, Anyway, we moved from one studio to another one, and then we went into Shoreditch. And then we were offered the opportunity to rent a bar to do some events in. And that in, ended up coming to take over the whole venue. And we actually signed a lease to take over the venue that had lost its license. So that started to um, introduce me to the world of the legalities of keeping property and commercial property. Right. So you had a lease on a property mm. which had no license. Had no license. You wanted to run yeah. parties in it, but you couldn't serve alcohol. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not so a winning combination. No, I we, we could serve alcohol. It had been a restaurant, but it, what it had done, it had lost its music license because of sound problems. Okay. Yeah. So apparently the way the building had been converted were issues. And the residents nearby had managed to close down the previous club. Young, naive and incredibly... Um, bright as I thought I was, I thought, well, we can solve those problems. Maybe a year later and about £100,000 down, it was apparent we were never going to solve the sound issues. Ouch. And um, so that was a little bit of a painful bump. But then I'd been in the industry now for probably two years, thought that I saw a lot of opportunities. And there was another nightclub just across the street was owned by some older guys together. They were ready to then retire. Yeah. So with my business partner, we said, well, yeah, this is something we'd like to take on, but it was quite a lot of money. Um, so he approached his family, I approached my family, and we actually they raised finance on both sides. We put that on the pot, put that in a, together. We were just about to sign to take on this. It was about 400 capacity venue in London. And my business partner, who was supposedly the, um, the artist and the brains of that side of things, decided actually, no, it was too risky. And we ended up finding a venue in Germany. 
Okay. Of all places, I don't right. ask. That's a bit random. <laughs> it was a bit random, but it was a it was a good good friend of his from the industry was over there, and was was being really successful with some events. So there was a club that was um, in the uh, the heart of Reaper Barn in the nightclub district in Hamburg. So anybody that knows it, it's the street the Beatles were on way way back, and this venue had been empty for a long time, and it just come on the market, and. Um, and we signed a lease on that. That was a 700 capacity nightclub venue in the middle of, as I say, the equivalent of Leicester Square. And we thought, well, that's it now, we're made. We knew there was five, five, 10, 15,000 people would walk past the front door on a Friday and a Saturday. And what I then learned was actually there were some things I didn't necessarily understand about the industry that I thought I knew. And um, we were there two and a half years. And during that time as well, we were, we were following the model of a couple of other bigger guys and we actually went over to Ibiza, took on a club there, also in Miami, in South Beach in Miami, over in the States. Wow, okay, so you were an international So we were an international club brand, yeah. yeah. So we had all the, um, the recognition. And, and did so, you own so them thought, or you were renting no, them? These, these were leased, leased premises, we had our brand. Yeah. And we, we were growing under the naive assumption that um, eventually somebody would, we would be that big and successful that somebody would buy us up. Mm. We'd missed kind of a small detail, is that actually you're supposed to make money along the way. And what we were doing was constantly, every penny that we generated, we'd put back in the company and we weren't really saving for a long-term future. Yeah. And then when the recession came, then all of a sudden we were caught out. And so rather than just breaking even every week and every month, all of a sudden we started to slip back. And, and why was that? Just because people couldn't afford to go out anymore? That, well, that's, so that's, unfortunately, yeah, in, in a recession, that's one of the first industries to kind of feel a knock. People just hold on to their money a bit more. They still want to go out, but they don't spend money. Everybody's asking and for tap water at the bar. That's exactly right. Yeah. Or, or in my it. case, I drink soda water. <laughs> soda water. Yeah. Yeah. Or people would run out to the cheap bar next door and have a few drinks and then come back in again. Yes. And um, so over a period of about six months, that all kind of slipped, slipped away. And unfortunately, yeah, in about the middle of two thousand and eight, we had to um, hand the keys back on the club in Germany. Right. And I then came back to the UK with a mountain of unsecured debt. Um, and and really, I just realised there was no way out of it. And the final, the final nail in the coffin was the uh, the bill I had from the German authorities for ninety thousand euros of unpaid taxes. Wow. And um, that's when I had to just kind of throw the towel in, and unfortunately was um, declared bankruptcy. Yeah. And that was in early two thousand and nine. Right. So I mean, how much debt did you have was in total? The well, kind of the irony was all the time that I'd been accumulating the debt. I knew that my three houses, the equity in those, was more than enough to cover the debt. Mm. So I was always quite conscious of, if anything happens, I can sell everything and we could break even. But unfortunately, with the recession, of course, all the capital values dropped because we were in a quite a high mm. capital growth area. Mm. And the unsecured debt was probably in the region of about £150,000. Mm. And there was some other debt. Um, I think all in after we'd so I'd sold one house just before the bankruptcy trying to clear some debts, but it just wasn't enough. Mm. And all in, it was probably a, a, in the region of £200,000, but I'd also already put in um, probably about half a million in total over the, the time frame. Wow. That's what we, we kind of lost. So yeah, a very, very uh, painful, expensive series of business lessons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, mm, but course, looking, yeah. looking back mm. now, obviously the property side where you were doing the forerunner of serviced accommodation mm. on the single let buy to let seemed to be working really well. Do you oh, wish you'd yeah. put more energy into that? If only. If only, yeah, an obvious <laughs> if, thing to yeah. say, probably. Yeah. Oh, if only I'd, and that's my, I'd love to, that's where I'm now working to get back to that, for just five, maybe five houses in my area. 
Yeah. They're probably now in the region of 400 to 500,000 pounds yeah. each. That would be a very comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. Um, one reminder out of that though, I did actually meet my wife while I was in Germany. Okay. <laughs> so, so that was uh, certainly uh, that upside and obviously the many lessons along the way. Yeah, which but, we'll, um, come, we'll come to hmm. that in a moment because you've, obviously on the business side you learned uh, an awful lot particularly about running businesses and how to run businesses properly. Yes, it did, yeah. Which is one of the one of the things I think we forget when we hear about people going bankrupt. We tend to assume there's kind of a stigma around it. But within an entrepreneurial community like this, I wouldn't say there's a badge of honour, but it's certainly not something which I think we think of as being a shameful thing. There's a lot of benefits that can come from it. I think I hear people tell me, particularly in the United States, you can be as successful if you like, but if you've never actually had a, a downturn, then you kind of don't know what that brings. Mm. So I think it's that old analogy. It's a bit like trying to learning to walk. Yes. You actually have to fall over first yes. to be able to do it properly. Yeah. So, um, and I will say, I think it took me probably four, five, even six years to really get over the emotional kind of sense of loss and appreciate it for the the value that it was. And given the choice, would I do it again? Well, of course, it would be nice to have not have, to have not gone bankrupt. Mm. But then I don't know where I'd be now because I might have just actually still be stuck in that, keeping it barely alive, mm. working all hours till often six, seven, eight in the morning. And even, you know, so had it not been taken from me, mm. it actually might have you know, really impacted my health. And so I could still be stuck there, if you like. Yeah, mm. yeah. Very interesting. Mm. We'll come back to that when we're talking perhaps more generally about business a little bit later. Mm. So what happened then? You're broke. You've got no business. Got no business. And where you've lost start. your houses. Yeah, yeah I don't know, I think, you're starting from scratch. I think I was nearly forty then, and um, you know, late thirties, and I'm not really qualified for anything. As I said, I grew up on the farm. I got a truck driver's license. What do I do now? Well, well good question. What did you do? Mm, what we're doing it. What happened with the with the bankruptcy? Obviously, the receiver comes and they look at all your assets, and so I'd already sold one house. So I still had two, and they valued those properties. And they said, okay, we know that there's, I think in total was about 75,000 pounds of equity between the two. And I had the option to, to buy those properties, or obviously I didn't, I didn't have the money. Um, and one of them, we decided that there was, there was no way I could keep it, but I had a good friend of mine that I'd known for many, many years. He had some savings. So we negotiated a deal with the receiver where he bought the receiver's share of that property. Okay. So I managed to maintain the same mortgage I had on it, and then we... Um, signed a deed of trust between us, which effectively gives him ownership of half that house. Oh, okay. So I was able to keep that going. So despite being made bankrupt, I was able to maintain um, a mortgage through that time. Right. Um, but also his, his background, he's actually spent 25 years working in the construction industry and specifically as a carpenter. Mm. So I was thinking what to do next and he approached me and said, well, why don't you come and work with me? And he said, I'll teach you how to work in property and you know do work in the construction industry and then maybe we can take on some more properties together mm. so that was in about mid 2009 mm. and uh, so i went to work for him mm. it was interesting i think so by then i was i'm guessing 38 39 mm. i actually working on a building site alongside guys who were 18 and 19 so 20 years my junior and they're earning the same money mm. because that's all they'd done mm. so that was a little bit painful but i did appreciate i was actually learning a new trade and that really taught me a, um, a lot about understanding you have to begin with the basics. And that's what I realized looking back at the club industry. If I'd have ever worked in the industry as a barman and maybe, you know, as a promoter myself, I'd have had a, a deeper insight into the business side of things. But yeah, anyway, we're working. Um, and in the end, it was about four years in total. 
working on the tools as a carpenter and learned to do the basics. So now I know when I walk in a property, I can see what needs doing. I know how to swing a door. I know how to fit a kitchen. But I also appreciated over time that I was never going to get rich doing that because I was only ever earning a wage. Um, but what that enabled me to do was to you know, pay for my lifestyle costs. My partner came and, um, and lived with me from Germany. So we were just about able to, to rent somewhere together. And um, the ray of light in that time, it actually got to 2012. And that's when I learned about progressive property. Oh, wow. Okay. So had you been buying properties in this time? No, no, no. In just this, just keeping your head above just water. Just keeping my head above water. Um, so I, and I had to obviously have bad credit. That showed on my credit file was my, for my bankruptcy. I, so I couldn't get credit from anybody. No. So I still I had now had a 50% share in the one house that we were still doing the service accommodation. But I was thinking, how on earth am I going to acquire the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds I need for a deposit? How can I work my way out of that? And then somehow I got onto the progressive email list. Well, it's that thing, isn't <laughs> it? Just it? Happens. It, it, just it just happens. <laughs> and it's that uncanny thing, karma. It was when karma, when yeah. the disciples ready, the master that's appears, that's and all exactly that kind right, of stuff. Yeah. You and there was, a, there was a little dike and, I would, and I'd learned about people buying property in different parts of the country where that was cheaper and I thought well, that sounds like a good idea. But then there was a little paragraph in one of these newsletters or these emails about the concept of rent to rent. Mm. And I believe back then Progressive might be one of the first companies in the country to actually offer a course. Mm. And but they invited, um, there was tickets to go and visit the super conference at Wembley. So at that event, first of all, it was great to be exposed to to realize I wasn't on my own. There was a massive audience there of people all interested in, in property. But I still went there with the mindset that you needed money to buy houses. Mm. That was the kind of block that I had. And I knew in my financial situation, it was still going to take me years and years. A block most people have when they start. Exactly and right. understandably yeah. so. Yeah. Mm. And then, um, and I think it, was, it might have been a two, I can't remember if it was a one, I think it was a two-day event. And anyhow, during, during that time, there was a guy got on the stage and he talked about how he'd, he owned one or two properties, but he wanted to expand his business. And he'd found a way of taking on property that other people owned and actually managing that effectively on their behalf. Mm. And that was the whole concept of rent to rent. Rent to rent as we know it now. As we know it now. And I was just sort of thought, that's for me. Mm. And remember, I'm someone that's now lost in the region of half a million pounds in a business that went wrong. Mm. So I thought before I spend any more time and any more money in a new industry, in a new business, I make sure I get educated. Mm. And that was the big shift for me, was actually it's fine to spend some money on learning from the beginning right. from other people who are already doing what you want to do. A big shift? It was, yeah. I understood the idea of as a carpenter, and I, in my youth I did quite a lot of sports coaching. And from a physical sense, I understand you want to get taught. But from an intellectual point of view, I thought you could learn most of what you needed from books. Mm. I realized that wasn't true, mm. because it's not just about the information, it's what you think about the information and the emotion that's involved. So for me, that was um, really, really beneficial. And so on one day, I know that I, I signed up for the course. And subsequently, at the event, this um, big loud guy, Rob Moore, was on stage. And he talked about the VIP program that they were offering at Progressive. And I knew that was the second part of it, because it's not just what you learn on day one. It's obviously how you apply that over time. And back where I was back home in Surrey, my friends used to go down the pub and on a Friday night and talk about football and maybe girlfriends and what they'd done in their job, but I didn't know anybody else that was actually actively making money in property. Mm. I thought, well, I know the second part of the equation is first of all, learning what to do and then having a peer group that you're accountable to. Mm. And so that's when I um, signed up and I joined the VIP program. Right. 
So you're doing a rent to rent course and you're doing so the VIP. I, so I did the rent to rent and I, I held my VIP start until I'd done the course. Yeah. So I did the, I think it was, a, it was a two day course. And half of that was really just the nuts and bolts of rent to rent. And the second day, Rob was involved a lot more then and taught far more about actually growing a company. So not necessarily the specifics, the tactics of that strategy, but also how do you grow a business over the long term and really sharing his experiences. And, mm-hmm. and I found that really beneficial. Okay. But at this stage, you're still a carpenter. I'm still working as a carpenter. And then now the challenge came. So as a carpenter then, I was self-employed and I was earning 80 pounds a day before tax. So I'd get 60 pounds a day, five days a week. That's 300 pounds a week I was taking home. Well, VIP then was 500 pounds a month. So it was taking me over two weeks every month about two weeks just to pay for my membership of that and the transport up here. Um, but I knew I had to do it. So all the things were really tight and I ran that for about six months. I took a break over for about two months, two or three months, and then completed my VIP. And it'd been about a year and I hadn't really made any progress. And I knew it was psychologically, I, was, um, I knew what I was supposed to do, but in the day job, there was just no spare time and I, wasn't able, I hadn't found any deals. And I was really getting close to throw the towel in and thinking, this property lark is something I'm going to need to do in the future. I do have to go and work in an environment that where I can maybe make some more money. And out of the blue, I received a phone call from a guy who was a landlord in my area. And I'd written him a letter about six months previously. And he said, oh, I've just found your letter. Uh, I think it's time that we had a chat. Okay, then I went and met him for a coffee. And he had an 11 bedroom, 14 person HMO in Egham in Surrey. And he'd owned the house for 30 years and he was now ready to retire. And he liked the idea of what I'd offered in the letter. Would have me run it for him while he was over in, in Belgium with his wife. And that was a great idea, but the house was really run down. In that time, he hadn't really invested in it. And I knew there was money needed to be spent. And I didn't have that money. And my family didn't have that money. And then there's the second kind of uh, miracle that came out of the super conference was that at that event, I'd swapped business cards with a guy who was a business owner in my town. And that was my first or second really JV partner. And he was interested in what we were doing, but he was busy in his business, but he had cash. So we shook hands on a deal, signed paperwork, and he invested, put 15,000 pounds up. We used that money to really refurbish the HMO. There were still tenants in place, but some of the rooms were empty. So as people left, we went around, refurbished those rooms put a new, um, refurbished the bathroom. And really for the first year, didn't actually see any net profit out of that at all. So there's quite a lot of time and effort and energy went in. But once that year had finished, my JV partner had all his money back. We'd invested some money again back into the property. But now I have an asset that was generating well over 1,500 pounds a month, free and clear. And that was the start of really my rent to rent growth because off the back of that first property, I was then able to show other agents and other landlords that I could actually, I knew what I was talking about and the business was working and by now I'd got some experience. Mm. And so the money from that enabled me to give up the job as a carpenter mm. because that was then enough to live on. Yeah. Mm. Well, a fantastic start. And there's mm. so much in that, isn't there? Because you could say it's serendipitous that it all happened. But the reality is you actually went out and you made it happen. Mm. You were talking to people. You went to the super conference. You exchanged cards. You wrote to somebody and they kept your letter and they read it. Yeah. So it came down to what you did. You took the actions. It didn't just all fall in your lap. Yeah, that's right. There was a lot of things I, I did that maybe didn't give any results, but I know you have to keep going. And that, that's the key to it is to keep. And I was only reminded actually by someone just um, a few weeks ago that I'm now helping grow their business. 
And the crazy thing is I haven't sent any more letters out ever since that first batch. Right. And okay. that's the crazy thing. So that yes. one, one of those first, I think it was about 100 letters. Mm. So, and we have a five-year deal on that. So as I said, the first year um, we reinvested all the profit. Mm. So 1,500 a month. So that will be over 15, was it 18,000 a year? Mm. Um, over a four-year period, just from one letter. That's actually the net profit that's come out of that. Wow. So well, there's certainly more opportunity. Right, but to be clear, you sent out 100 letters. About 100, I think. on the, and, yeah. and this was the one which, where the response, you got the response or where you had a meaningful That response. one turned into a deal, yeah. There were some other responses, and, this, yeah. it, and there was another landlord that um, we've since been talking over the last year, um, and one of his main key workers is in his 80s now. So when that guy finally decides to retire, mm. we've already agreed we're taking over two more properties mm. and another, um, it's about 15 tenants mm. in total. Fantastic. So I know that you just have to keep doing the groundwork. Yeah. And I guess that's coming back from my background as a farmer. Mm. You realise that, you know, they say when's the best time to plant a tree. Mm. Well, of course, it would have been 20 years ago, but mm. at least if you do it today, you know that you're going to see some fruit from that in the next five, 10 years. Yes, absolutely. You've reminded me, actually, probably going off to a bit of a tangent, but I was listening to something the other day which said we sow in a season mm. and we reap in a season but we don't sow and reap in the same season. Right. And yeah. I, that is, I, for me, I found that so helpful mm. because so often we want results instantly. Mm. But your story is such a good example of that. It took time. You wrote the letter, it took six months for the response. You then took the rent for the first year and you reinvested it. Mm. And that set you up now so that you've now got 1500 a month coming in regular as clockwork. Yeah. But it didn't all happen on day one. It took 100 letters to get the response. Mm. All of these things take time and nurturing. So you're right, from a farming background, I can see mm. there's quite a, a lot of similarities. But as entrepreneurs, mm. it's very similar as well. And if we had the same kind of farming mindset as entrepreneurs, we'd probably get a lot less frustrated. And I think that's one of the things that I love about the property industry. Obviously, the industry is always evolving and changing, but the fundamental base, you know, the fundamentals are still the very much the same. I've, in the past, I've done a lot of work in, in IT and particularly with web development. And the challenge with that is that the, the whole industry moves really, really quickly. Mm. And something that you learned three years ago is effectively obsolete. Mm. So it's a never ending. Whereas within property, mm. the fundamentals of what we need to, to live in a house have been the same for the last thousand years. So I love that. And that was a bit like farming. I realized in the past that maybe things had turned and moved um, you know, once, once I left that, that industry. But within property, it's still about the basics of clean, secure, mm. safe accommodation. Mm and you know, creating a, a home for someone to live in where they actually want to come back to at the end of their working day. Mm. And if you keep doing that, and whatever happens and however technology and legislation changes, the basics of that, I believe, are something that, you know, the work I'm doing now is still going to manifest and still be there for years and years into the future. Absolutely. Well, you've already given the example that you were doing effectively serviced accommodation 20 years ago <laughs> without knowing it. And it's still the same. Uh, and it's yeah. still the same. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So just to go back to the deal that you did with the tired landlord, for mm. want of a better description, yeah. what, what was the deal? Do you mind me asking what the deal was? No, of so course. It's a five, yeah. five-year deal? So it was a five-year, and it was almost a, a, a lease option because we, we have also, he, he actually wanted to sell, the house was on the market, but it was at the asking price. He didn't get any offers at that level. But um, we, you know, I don't mind sharing, we pay him £3,500 a month. Um, so it's a very nice pension. And he's got no debt on the property. But some years before, he'd actually already sold off the garden to be redeveloped. 
so although it's a nice big house and at first glance you might think oh it would it'd be easy to, to buy it and knock it down and rebuild mm. there's not actually that much money left in a development kind of deal so the highest best use of that is probably to run it as an HMO it's almost like a big hotel mm. so we've agreed a five-year deal at any point I can buy it but he uh, he's linked the purchase price to the Halifax index okay. so it is actually increasing obviously in price mm. all the time but only a few months ago, I've already had a meeting with him to say that he's happy to extend that at least for a sixth year. But also I proposed something to him and asked him about if he was to sell it, what would he do with the money? And he didn't really have a thought. Um, but he still wants to, he's got kids and he would still like to have it in property. So one deal I proposed to him is that actually he becomes um, a joint investor in a limited company and that company buys, effectively buys the property from him. Mm. So what that will do is it will release a fair amount of cash for him to go and work with but maybe we'll only, maybe 25% of that will be his ownership and his stake. So it might be a way actually we can buy even a, you know, a million plus property without having any upfront capital because the owner is effectively going to leave that 25% that the lender might want in the deal. Yeah. And it's only that kind of creative thinking that I've learned through the last three or four years of consistently coming to the courses and training and hearing ideas about how other people are, are structuring deals. But that, you know, the confidence I've now got of actually of, at one end of managing the tenants and at the, I know what the market's doing and I know how, room, how quickly rooms feel. I've got really feel that in my area, I'm comfortable with that. But also my business background now gives me a, a more confidence to talk on, you know, mi million plus deals now. Yeah. Well, great idea. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you're getting 1,500 quid net, oh, even that, though you're yeah. paying him three and a half grand a month. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So it works. And there, so I share some of that with the original JV partner because obviously that was the, mm. um, but I manage that. So we've, we've scaled back his share of that now. Mm. But that's still really effective. Um, but it also, you know, the other plus part of it was the fact that it gave me the credibility to then secure other properties. So well, I was going to say, yeah. did you stop there yeah. or did no, you not carry at all. on? No, 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 I certainly carried on. Got so the now, taste for it. Yeah. The, the portfolio now is, is where we manage, we have 50 rooms across the portfolio. So that's with the one house that I have, I own and my rent-to-rent -rent properties. Um, it was up to 60 at one point, and then a couple of properties, they weren't really performing particularly well, so I gave, those, gave them back at the end of their term, which is another great thing about rent-to-rent, -rent, is that your, you know, your ultimate risk is only ever the length of the agreement that you sign. Mm. Whereas if I'd bought a house and it turned out to be bad, a bad performer, mm. I might have been saddled with that. Mm. So that's another thing. My, my risk tolerance is obviously um, I still know in business you have to take risks, but something I learned just a few months ago and I hadn't realized I took on board is that now it's my, my duty effectively to not just minimize the chance of failure, but minimize the price of failure. What do you mean by that? So Jason? what that means is if I take on a deal or if I consider a new business proposition, I have to ask myself, yeah, how much could I make out of that? If it was to go wrong, what would it actually cost me? Mm. So recently I did my first foray into serviced accommodation. Now that actually, for a whole series of reasons I won't go into, it, it didn't work. But the, the deal probably cost me about £2,000 in total. Mm. Now, given the turnover in my business, although that was unpleasant, it didn't affect my business at all. Mm. Whereas with my nightclub industry, I realized the price of failure in that was bankruptcy. I actually lost everything. Mm. So what I effectively gambled everything mm. on a number that didn't come up. So now I'm more, far more aware and careful that if I take on a new property, mm. if it's going to work, okay, I see what the plus side is, but I also look at the downside. Mm. If it doesn't work, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. 
and if the risk is too great, in other words, if it could impact my business long term, then it's a deal that I don't need to do. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I, on the podcast a, a couple of months back, I did um, a double header, two, two consecutive podcasts about risk and risk oh, taking. Brilliant. I should find that. Yeah. I think that's a really great way of looking at it. And so often we think about what could happen, which is kind of what I majored on in the podcast. Mm. But you've added another element, not just what's the probability of it happening, but what would it actually cost if it did happen? Because when we start overanalyzing, when we start thinking calamitous thoughts, we imagine that the ultimate, if anything did happen, it's going to mean ruin, disaster. Mm, that's right, yeah. Whereas quite often, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So, so I, I, th- I think that's a great way of quantifying yeah. it. I have yeah. a, in, in the past, I did some, um, a little bit of Forex trading, mm. and my mentor on that was very conscious of you never ever risk more than 2 or 3% of your capital on any one trade. Yeah. So effectively, you lay that same mindset across your business. In the beginning, it's easy to take bigger risks. You think, I've got nothing, so I had nothing to lose. Mm. But of course, what I also appreciate now is time. Mm. And time is, as we know, our most valuable asset. Mm. So I did lose some time, but I've learned by it. And that's given me some, you know, the foundation to go forward now. This is a business. No, you, very real business. Are you running yeah. it as a business? I am absolutely running it as so a business. So what yeah. does it look like? What does your business look like? In the, in the beginning, I did everything. But I didn't have the, the, the money that I earned was effectively replacing my job income. Yeah. So I was working on the properties. Um, I got the experience to do that, which was great through the carpentry work, and I was, also, I was decorating. I was also checking the tenants in and out, and I was doing all the administration and the accounts and really everything. Mm. And I felt that was what I had to do. Mm. And that was one of the things I'd always learned on the farm is that you have to do everything yourself, mm. or so I thought. Mm. When I got to 55 rooms, I realized it was a bit like having 55 kids. And it took about six months where I got to the point where I thought this industry is not for me anymore because I, I was starting to hate what I was doing. And I wanted to tenants that were giving me maybe slight challenges. And I thought, am I going to end up killing a tenant or myself? Um, or I need to change something drastically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't quite get that bad, but that yeah. was some, some days I had the mindset. But one of the things I'd been told early on and not really paid much attention to was by one of my um, property trainers was that you really want to be hiring staff far before you think you're going to need them. And I, I had a, a guy that had done some work for me in the web development arena in the past, and I invited him to come and help me out, at least with the administration, because one thing that was happening, I was so busy driving around the properties and being out of the office that I was starting to miss maybe people were making late payments or some of the contracts hadn't been kept up to date or might have missed a, a gas safe certificate or something. So I knew that I needed to start by replacing the administration function. Yeah. And, and that was quite easy for me to do because I found it fairly simple to tell someone what I needed and show them the, what I'd already put in place. Mm. And over a period of months, we, we learned to, uh, I, I learned to trust someone else to manage that side of the business. Mm. But the big shift came back in 2011 and I asked my um, girlfriend at the time, did you want to marry me? Mm. Fortunately, she said yes, which was brilliant. So we got to um, kind of towards the end of 2011, and we were married last year, 11, sorry, last year in um, 2016, we got married. So at the end of 2015, I was, uh, we were then scheduling our honeymoon, and one of the big things we wanted to do was go away for a month. So we had a wedding, and it was kind of a week to recover, and then three or four weeks away. Now, as it stood, I knew my business wouldn't survive without me being there for a month. So I knew it was critical, and the big step forward was to get myself a tenant manager. 
fortunately my mentor again in, in the in the rent to rent training he had gone through the same process and the fortunate thing was he'd created a manual on how to hire your, your property manager your tenant manager and that was what I did. I found a, a friend of mine came and came on board part time, working for himself. And one of the happiest days of that kind of four, four or five year period was the day I gave over the phone because I've been smart enough to have a, a separate phone for all my tenants to contact me on. Mm -hmm. And I then gave him the responsibility of making sure that the rooms were full and the tenants were happy. Mm -hmm. So at that point, my business was I had an admin manager now part time part-time tenant manager, and I was effectively still looking after the properties because I figured that's where I was best served in the property. But I'd also got a whole series of different tradesmen that I'd, um, a database I'd grown over time. And so we had our wedding was at the end of May in 2016 and was away for a month. And when I came back, one of the most magical things as well after giving away the phone was to know that there were the tenants now in my properties that I never met and I didn't know who they were. So rather than walking down the high street in my local town and having people wave at me and then stop me and ask me about problems in the property, I'm now slowly moving away from that point where actually I realize now I don't need to know the names of all my tenants firsthand. And it's probably better that I don't because then I don't need to be involved emotionally. Yeah. And kind of the last phase of that systemization of my business is now the administration function is now handled by a VA. So I have a, a virtual secretary still based in the UK and she's got a couple of full-time staff mm. and it's probably taken three to four months to get her fully up to speed mm. but we now have digital signatures on our contracts and I know that if a room comes you know, if, a, if a tenant hands in his notice that he's going to leave the room he informs the tenant manager tenant manager will um, put up an advert for that online probably in spare room mm. but it'll also inform the, um, the virtual assistant and between the bookkeeper now the VA, the tenant manager, and the part-time admin guy, I know that I can now, I'm now really over the next 12 months, I want to double the number of tenants that we have. So to go from 50 to 100. And is, can, that, is that your aim? That's the aim. Yeah. For probably for, yeah, for the, ne the next two years. Yeah. Ultimately, around 200 okay. will be in my area. I think that's, that's, just, yeah. that's a, a fair size of business. The area can support that. Yeah. Um, but I've only, I've now appreciated, I got to 50 on my own. I knew that was the absolute really maximum that any one person can handle comfortably on their own and still provide a good level of service. Mm. But now I've managed to get that all outsourced and, and everything systemized. So it's now my job and the, the, so the highest value use of my time is to go and find another deal. Mm. Another 11 bedroom house would just be brilliant, the amount, yeah. amount of extra money that would make. So I do my best now to, to make sure that everyone's got the resources they need to service my landlords and my tenants and then I can spend time looking on the next where the next deals are coming from. Right. So what really pr pr prompted you to do that was going on honeymoon going for on a honeymoon. month, which sounds very nice, by the way, yeah. going away yeah. for a month. With hindsight, then, looking back, do you think you'd have done that sooner? Absolutely. If, if you'd known? <laughs> if or known. was it just the right time? It, could you have done it sooner? I probably could have done it sooner. There was, I think I had psychological, it was, it was a block for me. I knew, I knew money was tight. And I would suggest it's probably taken me 15 years to get out of the mindset that was developed working on the farm where I thought I had to do it all on my own. And that was a big shift for me to actually be able to give up and give over responsibility. Mm. What I learned, again, through Progressive and my training was that it's okay to do that if there's a system in place and there's a reference point, there's material and instructions. Mm. So now the people that work for me, they know what they, what they need to do to meet my expectations. Mm. And it's also set up so that if any one of my team members want to go on holiday. So again, my admin guy, yeah, he's about to go away now for a month to go and see his family in the States. 
I said, that's fine, you can do that, so long as you know that your responsibilities are covered by other people in the team, which is all done. Mm. So that's a, that's a really, really, um, it's a feeling of confidence that gives me and, and security. Because yeah. I know it's not reliant on me, and if anything ever happened to me, it would still be there for my family. So for anybody who's listening, who wants to follow in your footsteps and build their own property business, and it doesn't necessarily have to be rent to rent, but if you're listening to this and you're thinking you want to get into property, but you don't have a lot of money to get started, Jason is a great example of how rent to rent can mm. get you started. But whether it's rent to rent or another form of property business that you're trying to run, when do you think one should be thinking about taking on staff? I think it depends on your, your personal situation. So some people um, I've spoken to, they, they maybe have a job now they're not enjoying. And they're saying, I'd love to give up my job and start a rent to rent business. And I, from my point of view, I would suggest that's a, maybe a mistake because you're, first of all, you're just changing one job for another. And in the beginning, you might be struggle to, to really use your time effectively. For, you wouldn't need 40 or 50 hours a week. Mm. So one of the, the benefits of having a, if you do have an income already, a job, and you start a rent-to-rent business alongside it, is actually, you might even hire someone maybe after your first property. Mm. I would say do it straight away, but you need to find the right person that's able to work part-time. And that means that the property, the profit that that particular property generates, if you already have an income from your job, you can use the profit from that first property to hire someone. Mm. And then once you've got that person on board, you can then work with them to maybe find a second and a third property. Mm. And so over time, you develop a business alongside your existing income stream. Mm. And then you've got the opportunity then to give up the job when you're ready. Mm. Now, I also appreciate some people might not have a job they might have lost their job or they might whatever income stream that they were working on. And I still think, you know, rent to rent is a great way of getting started. Mm. In the beginning, you might do more of the work yourself, but the important thing is every time you do a job to think forward and say, well, if I was going to have someone else do this job and I'm not here, what do I need to leave behind? What instructions do I have to put in place? Mm. What resources have got to be there so that I know that the next person is going to do this? Mm. Unless you really, really love people and maybe this is the job you want to do for the rest of your life. Mm. But I would, um, I would challenge you on that. <laughs> yeah, but it's about scalability. It is, it? yeah. You, you want to scale yeah. I think one of the problems is, and for a lot of us within the community, because we're fairly entrepreneurial by definition, a lot of us are solopreneurs. Like you say, we have this idea that we need to do everything ourselves. Mm. So making that leap to actually collaborating and maybe even employing, even if it's in a loosest sense, having a VA, there's having somebody who's accountable to you, who you're paying money to, for doing stuff which essentially you can do yourself can be quite a blockage, mm. a mindset blockage that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have to struggle through. That was a real shift. And that's one of the things from Rob's the book he published a couple of years ago, Life Leverage. Mm. The idea of paying something, someone to do a job that you could do yourself mm. and might even have time to do, mm. that was a big jump forward. Mm. Again, the farm, you'd never dream of paying someone else to wash your own car. Mm. Whereas now I realize I pay to have my car washed, but in that time, I'm probably working off my smartphone, actually pushing the business forward. Mm. And I think maybe the, the last part of my journey now is I'm just entering kind of the new phase because the, my rent to rent, I'm really clear on the fact it's a property-based business rather than property investment. Mm. Because I'm, although I'm making now good money and I'm learning a lot, I'm not actually building a, a long-term capital asset. No. So what I'm now using is the infrastructure that I've put in place and my experience and the credibility that's given me to now talk to investors about joint partnerships to start to buy more property. Yes. 
So part of the growth that I hope to see over the next few years will be properties that I then have an equity stake in. Mm. So now I've got my lifestyle costs covered from that business, there's some spare cash flow. I've proved I've been in this over three years now. So now, and in fact, the, the house that, that I took, the, very, the, the, uh, the joint venture that I did after my bankruptcy, just a couple of months ago, I managed to refinance that property. I've now got a, took an 80% HMO mortgage on that, and the capital that's released with the JV partner from the time, we've actually had a deal accepted on another property that's about 300 meters away. Mm. So we're now going through the process of hoping to secure some finance to, to complete the purchase on that. Right. So that would have taken from 2010 to seven years it's taken mm. to release enough money to then buy the, the second property. But that's part of the long-term game. That's the longevity of property, yeah. isn't it? it is. And it's kind of like the 80-20 rule, I think. Mm. You'll see 80% of your results in the last 20% of the time. Exactly, yeah. As long as you yes. stick at it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So um, right at the beginning of this podcast, I think you're, you said your goal is to have five properties in your own name in the local area? That, that I own, yes. That you own, yes. yeah. So yeah. is this a step towards that? This is a step towards that. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Now, on the rent-to-rent side, you're going to gear that up. You want to get 200 tenants in place. Yeah. For anybody who's thinking about doing rent-to-rent, what sort of properties do you look for and what kind of deals do you try and do to secure those properties, Jason? Yeah, so ideally, the in my area, and this is the thing you have to be really be really conscious of, um, the strategy is, is area-specific and tenant-specific. Mm. So in my area, there's a lot of um, professionals that come in. I'm quite close to the airport. The towns are fairly busy and also near the film studios. Uh, and a great example, there's, um, right now, there's a, <clears throat> the local recycling centre is being rebuilt. And there's something like 200 guys on site for as long as 18 months. Wow. But of course, quite quickly, they, you know, the local accommodation gets soaked up. Mm. So I've got people now you know, ringing me every week looking for rooms. So in terms of being able to serve that market of working people, and we say professionals, well, they might be builders, they might be you know, tradespeople, they might be restaurant staff, but people that are definitely in, in full-time employment can't afford to rent property in our area, or if they can, then maybe not for long term. They're not interested in it in the long term. Now, in terms of servicing that market, I know that given the cost of renting a family home, I generally need a property that I can get five rooms out of, five or six rooms. So it might be a three or four bedroom property, but it would have a couple of reception rooms. Now, ironically, the newer houses or houses that had a lot of money spent on them, of course, it became fashionable to knock through the reception rooms and have big open plans. So those kind of houses don't work for me which is also good because if you have a family and you have plenty of money, you might still want that kind of house. But I'm looking for the properties that perhaps haven't been adapted from when they were built, maybe in the 50s or the 60s. So they've got two or three rooms downstairs, maybe the kitchen's been extended. And it's also important, I think, out of all the properties, I only have one house that has a single bathroom in it. Ideally, there wants to be room to put in a second shower at least. They must have two toilets, that number of people. And when I've been talking, so I've got half of my properties have come through agents. I've got several different agents that are really happy with the, the principal and they like what I do. And some are direct to landlord. But I talk to agents and say, well, what I'm looking for are the family homes that for some reason are on the market but have been empty for a while. The, the people have maybe looked at them and they haven't taken them. And it might be because the location's not quite right. They might back onto a railway. It might be that they don't have a garden because it's already been redeveloped. It might be because it's next to an industrial site. So the property, maybe when it was first built, was highly desirable, but since then there's been development around the area or something's changed to mean that it's not ideal for a big family. Mm. So they're the kind of properties that, that work well. And also last year I took on my first um, student rent-to-rent. 
So a new avenue, I'm looking at not such a higher margin, but houses that have already been operated as an HMO, of course, they're ideal. So long as they're not in too much of a, you know, a, a high student area if you're going to target professionals. Mm. And what's the typical deal that you would offer to take over a property? So I, if, if it's through an agent, at the moment, that because my time's tight, I tend to, to like working with agents. So in my area, let's say a, a, a four-bedroom house, I might be able to, to rent for 1750 a month. And, but in my area, the a double room rate is probably around, around £600 a month six to, uh, to six fifty for a room. So I would say to the agent, look, let me have this on a three-year agreement. If it's the first time with that landlord, they might ask for a 12-month break clause, which for me, I've generally only taken on properties now I don't need to spend much money on. So I'd be happy with a 12-month break clause. Um, one of the prettiest houses I ever had, that happens. The investor bought it, they gave me a two-year deal, and then within eight months, they said, oh, we want the house back now because his, uh, his wife wanted to live, move into it. Mm. That was unfortunate, but that's, that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. I still made money in that time. Mm. But if I have a two- or three-year agreement, I know it's worth me then investing in some good furniture, mm. maybe decorating inside if I need to. And over that, it might take six months to, to recoup all my costs back, mm. but I know I'm in profit. You still have to make turn a profit within definitely within a year. Well, I was going to ask, how do you calculate how much rent to offer? Yeah, so generally you look at what obviously the, the asking price to be in. There's a lot of property that would be suitable, but it's too expensive. So I obviously, from a business point of view, I know what the rooms are going to rent out for. So I would want to work backwards. If I know what my gross rent's going to be, I know how much I need to have um, as, a, as a profit. I know what my average costs are. Therefore, there's an amount that I can offer in rent. And one really rough rule of thumb you want, I want to know that I can have a room or maybe a room and a half empty in a house and it's still break even for me. Mm. So it's one of the things that we teach on some of the courses um, with the, the no money down course as an example is if you know, some houses they look, look good but if you have to have every room full all the time in order for you to make a profit, that's too much of a risk for me. Mm. So I would want to know that certainly I could have one room empty and still cover all my costs and have some money spare. That would be the way that I'd say whether I could afford to take on a property or not. Mm. Fantastic. Some really good tips there. Thank you. Now, you've systemized your business. I have, yeah. And yeah. I know that systems are something that's quite close to your heart. Mm. Systems and processes. I did so, yeah. So what are you up to at the moment in terms of systems and processes, Jason? Once, it, it, although it took me um, quite a long time to really do it for my own business, once, once you start to see some of the impact of systems, ironically, it, sounds, it actually gets quite exciting. So to be able to have results continue without you being there. And as I experienced that for myself and then was chatting to some, some of my other property investor friends and also some people who, who aren't in property, they have regular you know, traditional businesses, I realized that I've, I've got some, some good insights into actually how to become more efficient in a business, maybe to improve you know, um, turnover, improve, improve profits. Um, but more, the aim is about security and stability in a business. So I actually now begun coaching. So I developed a brand called Systems Key, working with a, a mentor who does a lot of work online. I'm able to. I'm now reaching out into the web to find people who have businesses that really have done the same as me. They've they've started a business. They've got it successful, as I was when I had my 50 tenants. I had a successful business, but I realised I sacrificed my lifestyle to achieve that. Mm. So over about 18 months, um, reading quite a few books and then talking to friends, I was able to pull extract myself from the business. So now what I'm doing is working you know, with several business owners on helping them do the same thing. So it's really, really inspiring. And it also that teaches me as well. That helps me. Right. So if anybody wanted to contact you, 
Maybe um, to work with you. How would they get That would be great. Yeah, just go to uh, systemskey.com. Systemskey.com, all one yeah. word? All one word. Yeah, no hyphens, nothing no, funny. That's it. Yeah, nice. as it sounds. Nice and, nice yeah. and simple, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, contact me through that. That'd be great. More than happy to have a chat. Systemskey.com. Mm. And of course, the other thing which you're doing is that you're now a trainer. I am. Yeah. With Progressive. With Progressive, yeah. And so I, what, what are you specifically training with Progressive, Jason? So on my journey, particularly um, from my web development background way back, I actually started a, an Amazon e-commerce business. Mm. And very much a part-time, um, but it was, it's quite surprising how, how useful it is to have the extra money coming in. Even though you, my, my main business is um, covering all my costs, I actually have now um, a second income from an e-commerce business. And my wife, uh, who's actually an architect, much as she really loves architecture, there are, um, there are some days when she'd rather not have a job. And we've kind of, we've talked together about it and she's helping me with that as well. So in time, actually looking to replace her salary with that e-commerce business. Mm. And through the experience that I've had developing that myself, I actually now help other people in the community do the same thing, start their own e-commerce businesses, mm. and actually grow those as well alongside their existing business or their job. Mm. Um, and then really the, the other, um, the new course which is really exciting now here at Unlimited Success is the business development and business cash flow program. Mm. So Rob Moore with all his years of experience um, multi-million pound turnover companies mm. has actually created a blueprint to help business owners really shortcut. So, you know, what, what's taken me now really 20 years and hundreds of thousands of pounds mm. worth of painful mistakes to learn. I did, back then there wasn't anybody that would actually um, create a program. So I've now been learning that and I'm actually the same thing, helping entrepreneurs and business owners really systemize and, and structure their business. It's, um, it's the things that you don't know that you don't know can catch you out. Yeah. So the more aware you are up front, um, the more chance you've got of success. Yeah. Are you enjoying being a trainer? Absolutely loving it. Yeah. yeah. I realize it's, um, and it's great knowing that my businesses are still making money while I'm uh, helping other people grow theirs. Yeah. Love it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Jason, that's been really, really helpful. Love that. It's such an inspiring story. Thank you. It really is an inspiring story. And one thing which I haven't mentioned, and maybe I shouldn't mention, but I'm going to, is today's a bit of a special day, isn't it? <laughs> because you're here what's this today it's my birthday it's your yeah. birthday and <laughs> it is, so yeah. notwithstanding the fact it's your birthday you've come all this way to talk to us and what to, else would you want to do on your birthday well uh, there you go well, business, yeah. there you are you could be gorging yourself on crispy creams or something couldn't that's, you? that's tomorrow but you, tomorrow but you chose to be here so thank <laughs> you for that so fantastic thank you jason this has been the progressive property podcast i've been peter jones if you have any ideas uh for subjects which we can cover in the podcast or any questions get in touch with me through the progressive community through the facebook group if it looks like an idea which might benefit everybody we may cover it as a podcast but until next time here's to successful property investing <laughs>